you have to take heart from some successes along the way. If you look at the great movement that we all should be involved in right now, which is to stop this planet from overheating and stop us from filling the oceans with plastic gunk and all kinds of other stuff related to caring for the natural world we live in. There have been conspicuous failures. There have been setbacks, like four years of having uh, somebody who doesn't give a hoot about any of this stuff as president of the United States, now happily just coming to an end. But there have also been victories where some countries have made enormous strides forward. Some states in the United States, like California, where I live, have made very far-reaching commitments about renewable energy. There have been agreements, perhaps more symbolic than substantive, like the Paris Climate Accords along the way. I think you have to figure out any kind of long-term movement, whether it's to abolish slavery, you know, achieve full civil rights in the United States, or repair the planet. You have to look at the big picture, see how much still has to be done, and take some joy in small victories along the way. For these folks working to end slavery in the British Empire, they did have some significant victories. 20 years in, they managed to get the British slave trade abolished, which was a huge thing because Britain dominated the Atlantic slave trade. British ships carried more than half of the captive Africans crossing the Atlantic. They thought that was going to end slavery itself because British slavery in the West Indies so much depended on the constant importation of new slaves who could be worked to death, essentially. It didn't. And then they had to reorganize and go back to work again. But I think all movements work in fits and starts like that. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. If you followed my development on how to view acting on sustainability, you've seen a marked change from when I learned about the British abolition movement of the late 1700s and early 1800s. Adam Hochschild wrote about that period comprehensively in his book, Bury the Chains. We talked about it in our first episode, which I recommend listening to first, but in more depth this time. Until I learned about this movement and the group of people, not unique, but important actors in history, I saw few to no role models of what Adam points out is rare, people devoting themselves to helping other people become free, even at their own expense and time. We present ourselves in our culture as potentially suffering from environmental problems, but we are much more benefiting from ignoring how others suffer for our way of life. Anyone listening to my voice is almost certainly more like the absentee landlords and shareholders and companies profiting from slave labor thousands of miles away than like the people suffering. We benefit from learning about role models of people who said, I could benefit, and even though everyone around me does so, I cannot support or benefit from the system. I will make it my life's mission to end it. In their cases, the distant sufferers were in the Caribbean. In ours, it's Indonesia, the Philippines, India, Southeast Asia, Africa, Central America, actually most of the world. This time, compared to last time, I picked up on the importance of slave rebellion, of enslaved people acting in rebellion and to make things happen, telling me that we have to connect with people on the receiving end of our disposing of plastic and exhaust from our cars, jets, and power plants. I also wanted to learn about the personal side of the people Adam portrayed. How did they persevere through discouraging times? 
we are facing discouraging times. Most of us could, in principle, pollute a lot less, but our culture creates a lot of resistance. It's hard for us to act. For ourselves, it's hard for us to change institutions. Adam knows the history and got a glimpse of the people through reading their letters and direct personal things like that. So here's Adam. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Adam Hochschild. Adam, how are you doing? Good. Good, despite the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear. Good. And you're in the Bay Area. You're, you're by Berkeley. 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 So you don't yeah. have the big snowfall that we do here. That's right. Yeah, I've been reading about it. <laughs> Since we last spoke, I finished your book. And first, I recommend it to everyone. It's just, we covered a lot of things in our last conversation, but the depth and the richness in the book you know, we couldn't, couldn't get that in an hour. I'm wondering a few things. There are a whole lot of questions that came up while reading it. One of them was, you covered a lot of what happened. And I wonder if you got a feel of the, the psychology and emotions of people who were struggling with something over the course of, I mean, really generations mm-hmm. with not necessarily hope of success. Did you get a feel for what it was like for them in the moment? I mean, were they, did they feel like giving up? Did they keep each other going? Good question. Because for me, history is all about trying to understand how people at the time did actually feel. And we have windows onto that. We have windows onto it from the letters that they wrote, from uh, diaries, from memoirs in some cases. And the central person in the anti-slavery movement, Thomas Clarkson, who was the traveling organizer on and off over a period of 40 or 50 years for the British anti-slavery movement, wrote a wonderful memoir. And I think the people involved in this movement felt they were involved in a great moral cause, in some ways the greatest moral cause in the world at that time. They felt a sense of closeness to each other and, you know, brotherhood and sisterhood when it was going well. Mm -hmm. And they clearly felt despair at moments when it was going badly. And one of the interesting things to me about uh, writing Bury the Chains was that it showed me that, you know, here was a social movement which did accomplish something remarkable. It made what was in some ways the most powerful empire on earth, question and finally abolish an institution that people had taken for granted for millennia, slavery. But they had moments of total despair when they closed their office uh, because they were making no progress. And then something would happen which would reignite the movement again, a slave rebellion in the West Indies, a new parliament in Britain, a prime minister who was friendly all of a sudden, and the movement would get started again. And I think that's the same kind of progress that you see in any sort of movement that's ambitious and and aiming for something big. Same thing with the civil rights movement in the United States. If you consider it over the long Hall of the time since slavery ended in, in, in America, where all during that time there had been people struggling for full and equal rights for people of color in the U.S., it's gone in fits and starts too. That's part of any social movement, I think. Well, one big difference is that these guys didn't have these guys to look back on, and everyone since then has. That's true. <laughs> and I wonder if that was something, because like, blazing new territories. I mean, they didn't know 
that the images would work, that the slogans would work, that the all the signatures would work. I mean, I lost track of how many, I mean, I think you said it was 35,000 miles that uh, Clarkson yeah. traveled, yeah. but that wasn't like at one time, it was many times over this, and he didn't know that it would work. And he, going into territory where he was persona non grata to say the least. Mm-hmm. I mean, today to pollute less, I eat more fruits and vegetables. I don't mm-hmm. fly. Mm-hmm. It's really minor in comparison. It's, it's actually pleasant. It's easy. It's, it's yeah. improving my life. And I mean, for them, I guess to go with that sugar molasses isn't that big of a deal, but to work so hard, I was trying to get a feel for that. And, and I'm glad you shared that, um, the despair, you know, to say the word despair, I think doesn't really capture how it feels. Right, right, right. Well, you know, I think that in any movement, as I said, goes in fits and starts, but you can, you can take heart, you have to take heart from some successes along the way. I mean, if you look at the great movement that we all should be involved in right now, which is to stop this planet from overheating and stop us from, you know, filling the oceans with plastic gunk and all kinds of other stuff related to, you know, caring for the natural world we live in. There have been conspicuous failures. There have been setbacks, like, you know, four years of having uh, somebody who doesn't give a hoot about any of this stuff as president of the United States, now happily just coming to an end. But there have also been uh, victories where, you know, some countries have made enormous strides forward. Some states in the United States, like California, where I live, have made very far-reaching commitments about renewable energy. And, you know, there have been Agreements, perhaps more symbolic than substantive, like the Paris Climate Accords along the way. And I think you have to figure out any, any kind of long-term movement, whether it's to abolish slavery, you know, achieve full civil rights uh, in the United States, or repair the planet. You have to look at the big picture, see how much still has to be done, and take some joy in small victories along the way. And for these folks, you know, working to end slavery in the British Empire, they did have some significant victories. You know, 20 years in, they managed to get the British slave trade abolished, which was a huge thing because Britain dominated the American, the, the Atlantic slave trade. British ships carried more than half of the captive Africans crossing the Atlantic. They thought that was going to end slavery itself because British slavery in the West Indies so much depended on the constant importation of new slaves who could be worked to death, essentially. It didn't. And then they had to, you know, reorganize and go back to work again. But I think all movements work in fits and starts like that. There's so many different directions to go in. Now I'm kind of curious about your personal experience in researching this. I mean, you just said that they thought that would end the slave trade because, or slave slavery because they required they were working people to death. And I would suspect that the more that you learn, the more horrific this is. Like the more you would connect. I mean, it must be painful to learn more. It certainly was. I mean, I knew something about slavery in the United States, and what an awful institution that was for anybody who had to live under it. 
What I wasn't prepared for was that in many ways it was worse in the Caribbean because there the planters had a shocking saying that it is better to buy than to breed, meaning that it was cheaper to consider a slave's working life as being maybe 10 years, essentially work that slave to death, and then to buy constantly buy new ship shiploads of these uh, uh, captured Africans to put them to work on your plantations. It was cheaper to do that than to build housing, allow them a little more space for family life uh, so that the slave population could reproduce itself and grow, which was happening in the United States where there was much more land available so that the enslaved people could grow their own vegetables and stuff like that. And the climate was more temperate. In the West Indies, of course, it's very hot. Tropical diseases took an enormous toll. And because it is so warm, there's labor on these sugar plantations all year round. You don't get a break in the wintertime. And, you know, 12-hour days picking sugar cane out in the fields, it was a, it was a truly horrible life. And then sometimes on top of those 12-hour days, during the harvesting season, Every other night, you would have to work three or four hours uh, inside the broiling heat of a, of a sugar mill. So just learning about that, yeah, it was horrifying. I wanted to get as close to it as I, I could. A Jamaican friend and I traveled into the interior and looked around for ruins of old sugar plantations, and we found a few. And it's haunting. You know, you see what's now a sort of overgrown patch of scrubland and there in the middle of it is a rusted old sugar boiler and you think you know how many people endured you know nights in the boiling house here for decades uh, and that's all you can see now so it really did impress upon me you know what a horrible life it was for people who had to suffer under that institution did you have a sense of the psychology and the feelings of the owners, either there or, or there and the absentee landlords in England? Because they're facing this. I mean, you know, to some extent, they're there and seeing it. To some extent, the ones far away are saying, we don't know. They want to go there. It's better than being yeah. you know, stuck back in Africa with the cannibals or something like that. Well, I think it's a reminder that people's sense of what's right and wrong and what's normal and expected and what's shocking is really totally dependent on what those around them are thinking. And it was extraordinary to me the degree that this was true. I think that if in London in, in 1780, you'd stood up on a street corner and said there's something morally wrong about slavery and it should be stopped. You know, nine out of 10 people would have thought you were a complete crackpot because slavery had been around, you know, for thousands of years. The Romans had slaves, the Greeks had slaves. It was sort of accepted as normal. And Furthermore, people in Britain didn't have any idea of what the daily life of enslaved people was like. Although you can't say that that's something that makes someone more likely to become an abolitionist, because, of course, white people in the American South were surrounded by enslaved people and saw it every day. And 
most of them didn't think there was anything, you know, odd or unusual or immoral about this institution. When we look at, at Britain, as I do in this book, one of the remarkable things that I found out is that the Church of England owned a slave plantation on the island of Barbados, and it owned it and operated it right up until the moment that uh, Britain finally freed its slaves in, in the 1830s. So, yeah, people have enormous capacity to accept as normal horrible things going on around us. What interests me and the kind of people whose stories I like to tell are those who didn't accept it mm-hmm. and those who tried to fight against, fight against it. One of the things I hope to do without guilting and shaming, what you talked about at the beginning, the, the feeling that they had driving them, for us to look at the situation that we're in now and to pick that up, looking forward positively of what we could do, not dwelling in debilitating emotions. And I mean, that's my big challenge. I, that's what I think I said that before. That's the big hope that your book gave me is, is to have these role models, use them as role models. Yeah, I th- I think that is the big challenge that faces us. I mean, I I really do feel that that you know global warming is the big challenge facing the world right now, and that connected to it are all sorts of other ways in which we are simply not taking good care of the the planet we live on. I don't feel that making people feel guilty has ever been a very productive way of mobilizing large numbers of people to do something, Mm -hmm. but making them feel hope and urgency and a sense that there are things that can be done. There are things that can be done on a personal level, as you say, by, you know, not flying, eating vegetables and all sorts of other ways in our, in our personal lives. And then there are things that can be done on an institutional level where we have to put great pressure on, you know, our legislators and the people we elect to pass laws that will require us to go in a different direction. Yeah, I agree on, with all that. And I, I also want to distinguish that I think that my individual actions are not, they're separate from leading others. You know, that's yeah. something for me to live by my values. Yes. I still have to lead others, but leading others, I think, is one of the most effective things anyone can do. Yeah. Something that I didn't realize until I was in your book was that the value of the slave narrative and the actions that were happening overseas, because I've been looking at Wilberforce and Clarkson at first and uh, Granville Sharp, and you mentioned that there'd be a slave uprising in the Caribbean and that would spark things. And it didn't occur to me how important, like I was thinking, okay, it's these guys in England are fixing England's problems, but so much was going on, people didn't believe them, and that slave narrative was very important to get firsthand what was happening. Did people even believe when they read the slave narratives, or were they doubting those too? Well, there weren't that many slave narratives. In in Bury the Chains, I talk a lot about one, which is this remarkable guy, Olauda Equiano, who was a, a former British slave in the Caribbean who had earned his freedom, that is, while still being enslaved, he'd earned enough money on the side to buy himself from his owner. And then he realized he was not going to be safe remaining in the West Indies. So he made his way to Britain, tremendously enterprising man, served in the Royal Navy, uh, worked on ships a lot, supported himself as a barber for a time. And then he wrote this book, which he 
spent five years traveling around the British Isles promoting it. And I think for for tens of thousands of, of people in Britain and Ireland, he was, the I'm sure, the first black person they'd ever seen. So that was a... You know, that was a, a something that happened just as this movement was getting underway. And voices like his were uh, tremendously important. There weren't very many of them, unfortunately. It might have been effective had there been more. But there were very, very few black people in Britain. Uh, fewer still of them were, were literate. At the time that the movement got started in the 1780s and 90s, there was only one other formerly enslaved black person in Britain who wrote a book, uh, but it was not as effective as Equiano's because very little of it was devoted to telling his own story. It was more using biblical and philosophical arguments against slavery. He evidently spent a lot of time on the road talking to people, so it could be that he was more effective person to person than he was in his book, which doesn't move us in the way reading Equiano's story today does. But I wish there had been more slave narratives. There were a few more in the early decades of the 1800s, but uh, more still might have might have been more effective. One of the curious things about the white British abolitionists is that they didn't value the voices of people who had been enslaved as much as I would have liked to see them do that. Clarkson knew Equiano and made some introductions for his to help him on his way traveling around England uh, promoting his book. But no former slave was asked to testify before the British Parliament, for instance. I think that might have been effective. But, you know, maybe they thought about it. There are no records of this. It would be mm-hmm. interesting to see what the record of it. Maybe they thought about it and thought it wouldn't be effective. It would be going a step too far. Uh, I'm not sure, but it's it's kind of fascinating and a little bit disappointing to me that they didn't value the these black voices as much as I would have liked to see them do. Yeah, it was, I mean, Wilberforce seemed for for his reputation today much more politically conservative than I would have expected. Oh, absolutely. He was extremely far to the right on every other issue imaginable. You know, expanding the franchise? No way. He felt labor unions were the most horrible threat facing Britain, that women should have no role in politics. He was extremely conservative. But I think that's one thing that made him an effective spokesperson in Parliament for the anti-slavery cause because he was talking to fellow members of parliament who on most issues were similarly Neanderthal in their politics. And also the, the rebellions, the, what's the word? The activity of enslaved people in the Caribbean, it seems like that, well, it was a little hard to follow because of wars starting and stopping between England and France. Then there's people ending, ending up in Sierra Leone and Clarkson's, brother involved with that. But it seemed like the activity of Blacks seemed to help a lot. What's motivating me here is thinking of of getting messages from uh, places that are on the receiving end of of our pollution. Yes, yes. Very important to do that, I think. Uh, And I mean, that's one advantage we have with the kind of means of communication that we have in the world today. 
you know, that somebody who's on an island in the Pacific that is is getting uh, flooded by water because the ocean levels are, are rising can take out their phone and take a picture of it, and that can flash around the world. All, all kinds of injustices. I mean, think of the effect of the video of the killing of George Floyd, that that had echoing, not just around this country, but around the whole world. So we do have the advantage of those means of communication these days. And I think we got to figure out imaginative ways of using them. Yeah, certainly for me, even after I've already been doing a lot of, a lot of being fairly active, the documentary story of plastic had a big effect on me. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, I knew China wasn't accepting our plastic anymore. I knew it was going somewhere. And then I see people in homes in Indonesia and the Philippines, and the trash is taller than their homes. Yeah. That's stuff that we sent there. Then you go to New Delhi, and it's just mountains and mountains, and there's a farm yeah. right there in the shadow of it. You know the runoff is going right in there. Yeah. And I think most people in America's experience of plastic is it's a bit of litter on the street, kind of annoying. And somewhere there's some island in the middle of the Pacific that's covered with plastic. And then you get rid of it and you don't see it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the great thing that our means of communication today give us is the ability to say, wait a minute, it's not true that you can't see it anymore. Here it is in another part of the world often, or sometimes in, you know, dumps and poor communities in this country. Yeah. And I get oh, self-determination. That's the word I was looking for. And to promote the self-determination of, of people. Well, uh, so often I hear people say, you know, the problem of ocean plastic, it's really from these seven rivers in Asia. It's really, and, and they want, everyone wants it to be a, a waste management issue. Whereas, you know, the decisions to bring the oil out of the ground, once it's out of the ground, it's going to go somewhere. You yeah. can try to get it into a landfill as much as you can, as if that's some great solution. Yeah. But the decision to mine the profits from mining, that's where the, and, and then to make the plastic stuff out of it and distribute that. By the time it gets in the river, that, I mean, by the time it gets into the hands of someone who puts it into the river, it's so far past, that was going to make it into, into the ocean somehow. Yeah, yeah. That said, to increase the, empower, to empower people at the, at the receiving end and get, at, at least to get their message upstream back to us seems, that was something I hadn't really considered until I was reading about the effect of, as you said, a rebellion in the Caribbean. Toussaint Louverture? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just because he came apparently out of no training and then became very successful. But then he seemed to have, as he got older, or as he got more power, things changed. Mm -hmm. I was looking for a great lesson there, but I couldn't. He was a very complex man. Yeah. Well, the the Haitian Revolution, of which he was the first leader, was really the largest slave rebellion in history, and in some ways the only fully successful one, in that they threw off first the old regime in France, then Britain tried to conquer the island because, uh, or that side of the island, because Britain was at war with France and wanted this extremely lucrative colony, and Britain failed to do that. Then Napoleon came to power in France and wanted to recapture this very lucrative colony for his new France. His army was rebuffed as as well, but Haiti was devastated in the process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, half the population had 
fled or been killed or starved to death because almost all the whites left. That meant there was, you know, people with professions and skills and so on were all gone. And it was a uh, it was a terrible situation they were left in, uh, extremely impoverished in a very hostile world because no country in Europe or the Americas wanted a free black republic in the Caribbean. And France insisted that they uh, pay reparations for all of the French-owned plantations that had been seized. And otherwise, France would not trade with them and I believe threatened to invade them again. And so the Haitians had to uh, borrow large amounts of money from from, uh, European banks to do this. And they were still paying off those loans in the 20th century. So it's no surprise that Haiti is not in good shape today. Yeah, you had a few comments in the book that said, you know, the repercussions of this were still felt later or wouldn't really. You talked about debt, also degradation of the land. I mean, yeah. if I remember right, it was, am I saying it right, Saint-Domingue was the, mm-hmm. the most lucrative of, of everything. It was like everything. Yeah, it was the most lucrative colony in the world. And to look at that Haiti today, and also you mentioned reparations, and reparations is a big topic, today, not a big topic, but it's a topic today. Yeah. And without knowing, I mean, the reparations then went to the slave owners. Right. I mean, it, obviously there's a logic to it, but only if you just discount the lives of, and, of the slaves. Yeah. Or yeah. let alone the lives of it, just the practicality of it. it yeah. A Marshall Plan might have been more effective. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly the weirdest reparations in history. Being having the plantation owners pay paid off instead of the the slaves themselves. Yeah. I'm just thinking today if like if we let's say something happens and fossil fuel industry just drops like a rock, and there's going to be all these stranded assets in Houston and all over the world. And imagine we. Oh man, I hope we don't end up. Compensating <laughs> paying, them for that, paying them off, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, another thing to learn from history, because I'm, I'm sure they'll ask for it if they're not <laughs> yes. already asking for it, as if they, yeah, they probably sadly don't have enough government funds. Oh, you've talked a lot about different movements throughout history, and I haven't gotten to King Leopold's ghost yet, or many of your other things. Did I, I think I told you about the article that I found? I stumbled on, and I saw your name, and I thought, oh, let, I'll read this because it was yours. It was about I'm not going to get the names right. But it was um, restorative justice yes. in uh-huh. Florida, if I remember right. Uh, Alabama. Alabama. Yeah. I had done a post examining or thinking about um, defund the police, saying, you know, if people think that there's something that you could do better than the police, I've switched topics here. I, if you don't mind my mm-hmm. going off to the side for a bit, digressing for a bit. And I was saying, if, if there are things that we think that the police aren't that good at and that you could do better, this is a great opportunity to, to do those, some of those things better. I say this is like, not that picking up litter is like a really big deal, but I'm picking up litter and, you know, if, and then I read this article of yours and people, there's so many police in schools where I don't think police are particularly well-trained to help, you know, 10, 15 year old kids. And then these people are doing exactly that. I was like, man, you're on the pulse of, mm-hmm. of, I guess I, I felt like a lot of people are complaining and I'm not going to criticize that. I think there's value in that. But you're showing all these role models. And I'm like, oh, anytime I want a role, I want a role model, I should talk to Adam. Yeah, well, I'll tell you about this article. I do spend most of my time writing history. 
But every once in a while, when I have a chance to spend some time with somebody really interesting or go someplace interesting, I do revert to my previous life as a journalist. And I've always been interested in the idea of restorative justice and got to know uh, this remarkable man, Eric Butler, former professional football player, had spent some short periods of time in jail himself works as a restorative justice activist in schools. Now, you know, we usually think of restorative justice as being something, you know, in the criminal justice system where, you know, a crime is committed and instead of sending somebody to prison for years, the way we do all too often in this country, you work out some kind of community service they can do. Instead, often it involves an apology you know, and the acceptance of an apology by the person who was a victim of violence or whatever. But Butler is working in schools because his point is that, you know, schools are often a pipeline to the prison system because it's there that the pattern is established that if something wrong happens or bad happens, the solution is punishment, suspension, expulsion, Uh, of the kid involved from the school, or in an appalling number of states in this country, corporal punishment, uh, which is still legal in something like 17 or 18 states, mostly in the South. So I wanted to write about this man. Mother Jones magazine uh, that I write for sometimes was interested. And I spent a week with him in an all-black middle school in Selma, Alabama. I was fascinated by the chance to go to Selma because, of course, it was a landmark city in the civil rights movement, the the bridge where the late great congressman John Lewis uh, had his skull fractured in 1965 was just, you know, about five minutes drive from the school. And I watched Eric Butler at work where time and again, you know, there would be a dispute And he would jump in, take the people involved in the dispute, whether it was student and teacher or two students, sit them down, teach them how to talk to each other. And I was fascinated by this and inspired by this. And when I write a piece like this, a magazine piece like this, it's something that I hope will spread the idea that this is a a better way to do things than we do it now. Uh, Eric Butler was particularly moving person to write about because he had been around a lot of violence in his own life. And he told me uh, about a time 10 years ago when a terrible thing happened, his younger sister, whom he was very fond of, was murdered. And his first reaction was to figure out a way to take revenge on the murderer. Mm-hmm. which he couldn't do because the murderer had been arrested right after the murder was in police custody. Then he and some friends uh, thought, well, we'll take revenge on his family. And they began planning to, to do some kind of harm. Wasn't clear what maybe murder, maybe something short of that to the murderer's mother. And then the murderer's mother arrived at Butler's mother's house and fell to her knees and apologized for what her son had done. And these, you know, Eric and his tough guy friends, you know, one of whom had recently gotten out of murder, out of prison for murder himself, were so moved by this that they completely dropped their their plan. 
So to wind this story through the experiences of my weekends in Selma was what I tried to do in this article in Mother Jones. This kind of experience to change things, that wasn't, I wouldn't call it a crucible, but, or an epiphany. It seems to be, I'm trying to see on my own side, like how important is it for people to go through an experience like that? Do they, where it's like the, the scales fall from their eyes sort of moments. Is that necessary? Can people get as enthusiastic and feel as inspired without having to have that? Do they need that? Well, you know, I think most of us don't have any sort of single dramatic experience like that, but that if you, you know, go through the world with your eyes open and, you know, just be aware of, I mean, the the fascinating thing for me writing about Eric Butler was that in a middle school dealing with seventh and eighth graders, I felt I could see him showing a new paradigm for how we ought to deal with justice in this country. So in other words, you know, you don't have to be an eyewitness to what happens inside a prison, inside a jail, inside a courtroom. You know, go to your kid's seventh grade classroom and see how the school is dealing with disciplinary problems. And, you know, that can suggest a problem that needs to be fixed or an effective new way of doing something. And this was a school that had a security guard with uh, two walkie-talkies, one on each hip, sort of prowling around the halls at all time. Uh, A reminder that a great many schools in this country are sort of partly custodial institutions run a little bit like prisons. So, you know, I felt I didn't have to go far to see this. Speaking of the guard, Eric interacted with, he didn't show the guard up, and I don't think he chastised him. I couldn't quite catch the interaction, but I think he, my read was that the guard saw, oh, that's a better way of doing things. Because right now, I think a lot of people, when they say defund the police, I think the police are like, no, don't defund us. But I think that there are a lot of places where police do things that they probably don't want to do. And that they could do differently. I mean, here in California, one statistic we hear a lot of the time is that it takes more hours of training to become a licensed cosmetologist, you know, people who work in beauty parlors, than it does to become a licensed gun-carrying police officer. And I think there are all sorts of things that ought to be part of police officers' training and usually aren't. You know, every police officer has to go back to the gun range a couple of times a year to, you know, keep their shooting skills up to date. But I've not heard of any police force in the country, I hope there's starting to be some now, where several times a year somebody has to go through some session in nonviolent conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that's something that ought to be a key, key, key part of the training. You know, you can argue about whether it should be done by somebody carrying a gun on his hip or her hip. I don't know, but I do think that that there are all kinds of ways of doing this kind of work nonviolently and more effectively. And, you know, some communities and some countries are doing it. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. 
You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I would love to see if it's unnecessary for someone with a gun or a weapon or, or you know, licensed by the government to, to allow it to be violent, then if someone else could do it more effectively, I would love if the police themselves said, yes, yeah. we don't want to do that. We shouldn't do that. Something that motivates me in this area, you know, I, I visited West Point a few years ago and it made a huge impression on me, the sense of service. And it's funny, in, in today's world, the past several elections have shown this country's something like 50-50. And these cadets know that they're going to be, that means that they're defending half the people whose freedom they're defending. Yeah. Disagree with them. Yeah. And they still feel, I mean, they express like, yes, and I'm defending their rights Mm -hmm. on that. And also as a professor of leadership and author on leadership, how they teach leadership is very effective. Now, is the military necessary for that? It didn't seem necessary for everything. For some things, yes. I had this idea for a civilian service academy Mm -hmm. to do something like West Point or Annapolis, but teaching the trades, teaching people, you know, I mean, our infrastructure is not doing so well. And sure, we can send the Army Corps of Engineers in to do stuff, but what if we had a beautiful location to teach the leaders and they'd have to make their bed and they'd have to march, the equivalent of marching. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be like scaling down cliffs. It'd be like scaling down bridges. Yeah. With, yeah. Instead yeah. of guns, they'd have like soldering irons. Or, yeah. And then I saw a video of um, a general who was, it was one of the disasters, maybe Katrina in New Orleans. And this general comes in and he's going to be in charge of the military taking care of things. And the video I saw is of him going, put away your guns, put away your guns. General Russell Honore, a great man. Yeah. A great man. Do you know him? He, uh, actually, my wife knows him because she's written a book about Louisiana. She's met him several times. Uh, she's in touch with him regularly. And uh, I've heard his voice on the phone, but unfortunately, I've okay. never met him. But an extraordinary human being, three-star general in the Army. He, after the initial response to Katrina was bungled, he was sent in, did it right. And you're right. He told people, put your guns away. Guns are not going to solve this. And the natural thing for them was, of course, we have guns. That's what we do. Yeah. And I thought this would be a place. There's oftentimes there'll there'll be a disaster somewhere in the world, a flood or a volcano or something like that. And an American aircraft carrier will show up. Yeah. Now, to have a chain of command, people very well trained to work as teams, you know, in crisis situations, I think that's very important. The aircraft carrier part doesn't seem so important. And if we had boats that were not aircraft carriers, but had a well-trained, had these well-trained yeah. teams. Meanwhile, the aircraft carrier is now not where whatever yeah. the Navy is supposed to do with it. Yeah. I mean, also, I think you're right about there being a lot of dedicated, hardworking, well-trained people in the military I would love to find them something to do other than fight wars. Canada, I know, is using its military to distribute vaccines and to mm-hmm. get the vaccines across that, you know, really vast uh, country. And uh, maybe we could find something similar for the American military to do. Or to have a civilian service. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you know um, General McChrystal, but he proposes a year of service <laughs> for everyone in the country, Yeah, which as a young man, I would have opposed. But the big change there for me probably was 
how much I learned doing jury duty mm-hmm. of learning about how the government works and neighbors I never would have met otherwise. Yeah, I love doing jury duty. I, I know just what you mean. It, we're the two people. Yeah, it's <laughs> most people don't, but I, I welcome it. it it's been yeah. really fascinating for me. Yeah. That's even after I had a case that was a 30 day case when I was an alternate and there, when it came time to vote, they're like, okay, you got to leave now. It's like, oh, well, I guess I, <laughs> I, I played my role. I would have been fun to vote too, especially because they voted the opposite of what I would have voted. Yeah. I want to wrap up with one. I don't know if this is a big thing or if you talk about it a lot, but you, you casually mentioned a place where you write mother Jones and your role is a lot more than just as a writer with mother Jones. Well, it was uh, 40 years ago. I was one of the, uh, co-founders of the magazine with actually more than 40 years ago now with a couple of other people. And I worked as an editor there for about 10 years. Then I've basically been writing books since then. But when I want to write a magazine piece, I, you know, need a magazine in which to publish it. Sometimes it's Mother Jones. Sometimes it's the New York Review of Books, you know, the New Yorkers, Harper, the Atlantic, yeah, but it's a good magazine, and it's one that uh, I, I still feel proud of having been associated with. And, you know, it's a strong voice for social justice in times when we really need that. Any brief things you could say about the, the founding of it? I mean, well, what drove you? Or I was very much a child of the 1960s. I was involved in the civil rights movement briefly in the American South and a much longer time in the movement against the Vietnam War. And I think all of us who were alive at that time, you know, felt a sense that the world needed changing drastically. So at the time we started the magazine, this was long before the Internet. There were very few magazines of progressive politics in the United States, and none of them reached a a significant audience. And these are magazines I'd written for, like The Nation and The Progressive in these times, but they reached fairly small audiences of people who were, in a sense, true believers already. What we wanted to try to do in Mother Jones was to start a magazine that used color printing, really well-written stories, a lot of graphics, photography, to reach a larger audience. And I think we succeeded in doing that. And uh, I'm just delighted that the magazine is still going. It has a print circulation of about 200,000, but a a huge presence on the internet, uh, 10, 15 million page views each month, which is a lot. So it's out there. And now there are many other voices as well, because I think the internet has made it possible for all sorts of voices including, unfortunately, a lot of really crazy ones to reach a large audience. Well, I could go on, and I'm sure I'll come back to you after I read at least one of the others of your books. Yeah, if you've read, if you've read only one, you've got nine to go. So, uh. yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm working on mine, too, so I have to put everything off right. while I write that. Good. Anything I didn't think to ask worth bringing up? I don't think so. I don't think so. I hope you will read the other books. And... Uh, You know, if you want something comparable to Bury the Chains, but from a very different time and place, you might try my book about Americans in the Spanish Civil War, Spain in Our Hearts, you know, which was about a very dedicated small group of people at a different time and place in history who uh, decided to fight for something they believed in. But there are other books as well. 
So yeah, the King Leopold's ghost because of our mutual friend is uh-huh. it's, it's going to be a tough call for me. I'll get to them. I will get to them. Good. Okay. And yeah, I I'm just going to close by my telling you. I, I'm sure I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again. Just how valuable this history has been for me and giving me hope, uh, giving me role models, giving me a sense of feeling for years, people would say to me like, why are you so extreme? Why, you know, just, it doesn't matter. And finally there are people who said that, that I can, that I, I have a sense of inspiration from connection to understanding with it's, it's a tremendous feeling. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. That's very nice to hear. The more I learn about abolition, the more I find their movements and results relevant and inspiring to our situation today. How better can we honor their legacy than to use it to reduce suffering today? To me, learning that people faced resistance like we face and overcame it as we'd like to, that inspires me. It gives me hope. It keeps me going. We have the benefit of their history, which they didn't have. If you'd like to lead yourself and others to reduce suffering by changing culture and systems, I can't recommend enough to learn about people who have succeeded before. You can't go wrong starting with Barry the Chains. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.